the book of the Nazarene and the book of John the Enlightened of Elohim were included together in a text known as the Gospel of the Kaleidi, meaning wise strangers. The origins of this work are debated, as no original manuscripts have ever been found. However, it is commonly believed that the books were preserved and passed down by Celtic believers in the 1500s after previously being saved from arson, possibly either the burning of the Library of Alexandra or the Glastonbury Abbey fire in 1184. It has been tucked away alongside a secular work known as the Colburn. However, they don't remotely share any similarities. Whether this is a complete and divinely inspired text can certainly be debated. Nevertheless, we do believe that it contains the words from our Messiah that were not captured in the canonical gospel accounts. As stated by the Apostle John, if everything the Messiah did were recorded, all of the books in the world could not contain them. In this volume, you will find astonishing parables, new and old, that will challenge your walk. Join us as we test this book, allowing the Spirit of the Most High to guide us unto what is true. Shabbat Shalom and welcome back brothers and sisters. Welcome to the Parable of the Vineyard YouTube live stream of our Book of Nazarene reading and study. This is part 12. My name is Adam, your host, and I welcome you. We're going to be covering, we're going to be continuing uh, chapter 9, verse 30, and uh, continuing to study the, the words of our Messiah. And as the intro uh, stated, it challenges your walk. And uh, I can honestly say that, that this book has challenged my walk. And so for that, I'm very thankful to be able to study and test this book together with you. I apologize. We've had some gaps in uh, having these studies be uh, a little more consistent, but we've had quite a few, quite a bit going on here at the uh, physical, the local assembly here. We had uh, Shavuot going on the last few weeks, uh, preparation and actually uh, doing Shavuot and then the cleanup afterwards. And so anyways, my apologies. And uh, there probably will be a couple more interruptions during the summer. We have quite a few things going on. Um, Hebrew Fest is coming up in less than a month. If you haven't heard about that, just check out the video that we put out a couple days ago. Anyways, with that being said, let's pray and let's get back to studying this book. Father Yahweh Most High, we just come before you in Yahusha's name, and we thank you for the ability to have this platform to study together, Father, across the four corners of the earth. Thank you for preserving this text for us and many others that we get to study and grow. Father, we just ask that your Ruach HaKodesh would be here with us as we read these words to give us the understanding in our in our minds and in our heart that we may walk it out, Father. And we just, we love you, we bless you, we thank you for sending your Son who's given us life eternal and forgiveness. Amen. Hallelujah. So let's get to chapter 9, verse 30. This is where, actually, we'll do a shofar blast and then we'll start. Get your shofars ready. Let's do this. Okay, so here we are, Book of Nazarene, chapter 9, verse 30. And we're going to start off really strong with this verse. It says, Woe to all who hear, this is Messiah speaking, Woe to all who hear my words, but twist their meaning to suit their convenience. If a man says he is with me, but does not abide or live by my teachings, 
then he is a hypocrite. So, so basically, in a modern-day term, if someone says that they're a follower of Messiah, but don't live by or in his teachings, then he is a hypocrite. And let's not forget, what did he call the Pharisees? Hypocrites. What were they? Mo- what were they mostly interested in? Was it? I think the the general teaching out there today is that the Pharisees were all about the law, the law, the law, but had no spirit or had no love. But really, if you get down to the actual rebukes that Messiah had, he rebuked them. He says, none of you keep the law. They were more interested in their man-made law. What we talked about last week, which uh, we've actually quoted it quite a few times during this study already, where Messiah says, uh, there are two laws, the law of our Heavenly Father above and then the law of men. And he's like, when I talk about the Torah, the law, I'm talking about the Torah of the Most High, not the law of men. So, if a man says he is with me but does not abide by my teachings, then he is a hypocrite. If he says, but I live in circumstances where this does not apply, he is a liar. Far better that such as these say, we are against you. For until they do, the world will not be reborn or the kingdom, right? The kingdom is not coming. And that's what's amazing about the times that we live in is this refreshing, uh, this restoration of the truth is it's here. Praise Yah. And that's one of the reasons why I believe that the return of Messiah is very close. Deuteronomy 30, we don't have it slated to read today, but Deuteronomy 30 basically tells us that when you come, he says, when you come back to my Torah, you and on your children with all of your heart, soul, and mind, then I will come and regather you out of the four corners of the earth where I've spread you and bring you into the land of inheritance of promise. So that's, I believe, the, the promise is still there for us uh, to go into the, the heavenly kingdom when it arrives. So praise be to Yah. So I, I believe this is taking a pretty big stab at mainstream Christianity, which believes that the, the law is done away with. So how can we abide by his teachings and not walk the same way he walked? It's impossible. Totally impossible. And, uh, of course, just to remind you, just in case you're new, um, some of the reasons why we, we know we feel led to keep the Torah, uh, Matthew 5, 17 through 20 says, Think not that I am come to destroy the Torah or the prophets. I am not come to destroy but to fulfill. And we've ta- we've shared this meaning of this word fulfill the greek word is pleru and we'll see what it really means which is to make full fill up to cause to abound um to render full to fill to the top so that nothing shall be wanting to the full measure so the, nothing is to carry into effect nothing of this tells us that it's to be, be to go away Right here, I love this one, the last one, to fulfill, i.e. to cause Elohim's will as made known in the Torah to be obeyed as it should be. So, for verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the Torah till all be fulfilled. Whoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven, which I think all of us want to attain uh, to get there. And we're actually going to read the book of Nazarene counterpart to this verse here. And you'll see that everything that we've been understanding about Torah observance through passages like this, that we're reading literally mean exactly what it says. Whereas modern day interpretations will say, well, you know, it doesn't really mean that or, or doesn't really apply to you because you're a Gentile. He's just talking to Jews here. None of that. And so verses like this, 
where he says, if a man says he is with me but does not abide by my teachings and he's a hypocrite, there's no delineation between whether one was born as a natural branch in Israel or they're a Gentile grafted. There's there's no delineation. And we know that even back into the the, um, the ancient of days, in Numbers 15, 14 through 16, it's very clear even then that if someone wanted to join themselves unto Israel and keep the laws, they would be as a native born. They would be just like um, just like a regular Israelite. And so how much more today, by the blood of Messiah, are we the same? And there's no separation between Jew or Gentile. Paul even says it very boldly. He says there is neither Jew nor Gentile. Um, there, but we're one in Messiah through him. But uh, finishing up with Matthew 5, 20, it says, For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. So what's naturally been, not naturally, but what's been taught uh, over the centuries, of course, is, well, to see the righteousness of the law was not enough, and so you need the righteousness of Messiah to enter into the kingdom. But again, Messiah rebuked the Pharisees because they went about to attain their own righteousness, which is not of the Torah, but of their own. And Paul talks about this in Romans somewhere. Can't remember the address right now. Maybe it's two or three, chapter two or three. And of uh, another one, Matthew seven twenty one through twenty seven. Not everyone that says unto me, Master, Master, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father which is in heaven. Which really coincides in this: if a man says he is with me, so a follower of him, but does not abide in my teachings, then he's a hypocrite. So not everyone that calls him as the Messiah is going to enter into the kingdom of heaven, but the people that do the will of Yah. Many will say to me that day, Master, Master, have we not prophesied in your name, and in your name have cast out devils, and in your name have done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you that work iniquity. And we know that this iniquity means lawlessness, and I'll show it to you. You that work iniquity, the Greek word is anomia, and it means um, to transgress the law, transgression of the law. It's the condition of without the law, condition of being without the Torah. And it's either because you're ignorant of the Torah or because you're violating the Torah. But nevertheless, contempt and violation of the Torah is iniquity and wickedness. So, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him unto a wise man, which built his house upon a rock, and the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And everyone that hears these sayings of mine and does them not shall be likened unto a foolish man, which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Let's go back here also, and this is something that I've been noticing. It says, but I live in circumstances where this does not apply. And that, for me, um, reminded me of, of something you always, you, you've been, we've been seeing in the last few years. Right on the feast days, you'll have a group of people that are like, don't keep the feast days. Yahweh will, will destroy you. You know, we're not in the land. You can't do it. Um, and so... To me, that's like, but I live in circumstances that does not apply, right? I'm not living in the land, so I can't do the feast days. Um, just, you know, for that, I just want to remind you of what Messiah said in John 4, where he says to the woman in the well, Yahushua said unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour comes when you shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. 
We talked about this also in one of the not stream studies over the past few weeks. And so uh, just just be careful um, by, before we say like, oh, I live in circumstances where I, I can't do this. Let's just, let's just be very careful about that because we don't want to become liars. Okay, let's go to Natsarim 931. I bring light to the threshing floor of life where suffering and misfortune are the flails, tribulation and distress, the winnowing fan and the wisdom of Yahuwah, the winnowing shovel. Here, the wheat is separated from the husks, the chaff is thrown out and the good grains are gathered up. So here you have a parable about the meaning of life, the purpose of life, all in one little verse. And so here, our, our, our walk of life is is compared to the growing and processing of wheat. And let's remind ourselves that he said this elsewhere, Luke 22:31-32. And the master said, "Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, that your faith fail not, and when you are converted, strengthen your brethren." Matthew 13:18-23, "He hear ye therefore the parable of the sower." When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and understands it not, then comes the wicked one and catches away that which was sown in his heart. This is he which received seed by the wayside. But he that received the seed into stony places, the same as he that hears the word and anon with joy receives it, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. For when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, by and by he is offended. So this one here, it's like, uh, there's no root. And it's often said that faith is the root and obedience is the fruit. The, 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 fruit, the obedience is the evidence that you have the faith. And so people that have no faith really don't aren't relying on the Most High. So when uh, tribulation or persecution, persecution arises, they're like, I'm out of here. Like, I, I'm suffering this because of the word? Like, no way. I, it, sh it should be easy. You know, things should be, the red carpet should be rolled out for me. I, I believe. You, you told me to believe, and you told me the ABCs of salvation, and um, to invite him in my heart, and why are things hard? I don't get it. And psh, gone. He also that receives seed among the thorns is he that hears the word, and the care of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful so like financial hardships come and it's like ah i'm out of here um but he that received seed into the good ground is he that hears the word and understands it which also bears fruit and brings forth some hundredfold and some 60 and some 30 and the reason i'm bringing the reason i wanted to share that parable is it's very parallel to this if you aren't aware of how wheat was processed back in the day this makes no sense. Uh, the flail, uh, the winnowing, uh, the shovel, none of that makes sense. So long story short, wheat, of course, was, was plucked up from the ground. You had the stalks, you had the, 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 the grain, the cereal grain on the top. And, and the, the beginning of the process was to literally flail it, to beat it. You had to beat the heads of the grain to start separating uh, the grain from the, the housing of the, of the, um, um, the stock. And so it has to be beaten first, and then they would what they would do is they'd have someone with a winnowing fan. So they would have like someone just waving like a big fan to create air. And what they do is they they they'd pick it up, and they drop the grain down, and the wind would move the chaff away, which is undesirable, and the heavy grain would fall down into a pile. And then they take the shovel, of course, and scoop it up 
and store it. So let's, with that in mind, let's read this again. I bring light to the threshing floor of life where suffering and misfortune are the flails. So it's like he's basically saying uh, suffering and misfortune are there on purpose to test you. And you can, you know, you can, you can get upset with him about that. That's, that's your right. But I, I think the one with, with wisdom and true faith understands why this is necessary. And we'll read, uh, we'll read a passage that may make a little more sense for you. Tribulation and distress, the winnowing fan. So the tribulation and distress, it continues to separate the undesirable thing from the grain. So let's say the farmer wants the grain. He doesn't want any of the other stuff. And to get rid of that other stuff, these things have to be. And the wisdom of Yahuwah, the winnowing shovel, to get across the finishing line, you know, the finish line, excuse me. Here, the wheat is separated from the husks, the chaff is thrown out, and the good grains are gathered up. So this is a pretty awesome parable that uh, we really don't get anywhere else. And these are some of the nuggets uh, of this book that I'm just really, really excited about. Um, so the tribulation is good for us. That's basically what this is saying. The tribulation, the hardships, it's good for us. This is how he separates the unwanted parts from us from the desirable parts. James 1, 2 through 6. My brother, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations or trials or tribulations. So it's like, instead of like, oh, I me all the time. Like, whoo, hallelujah. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith works patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of Elohim that gives to all men liberally, and upbraids not, and it shall be given him. But let him ask in faith, nothing wavering, for he that wavers is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. So that's like, oh, I don't know, I'll be back and forth. And then. Hebrews 12, 5 through 8. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks unto you as unto children, my son. Don't despise the chastening of Yahuwah, nor faint when you are rebuked of him. For whom Yahuwah loves, he chastens. This is chastening as correction. This is putting tribulation in your life, hardships in your life. And you may be like, oh, doesn't he love me? Like, why would he do that to me? Because it's for your benefit. Whom Yahuwah loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. That should also really change our mind about parenting and how we parent. If that's how he parents us, well, how much more should we follow his steps? So it's like the modern day thought is like, you know, if you love him, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't dare spank him. And, uh, you know, no, if you love them, don't withhold the rod of correction. If you endure chastening, Elohim deals with you of sons. And that's the key. There's if you endure chastening, because some people flee at the chastening. And that's what we read earlier with Matthew 13. Um, which says, but he that hears um, the seed in the sunny places, the same as he that hears the word and receives it with joy, yet, uh-oh, has he no root in himself, but endures for a while. But when tribulation or persecution arises because of the word, by and by he is offended. So gone. So that's why it says, if you endure chastening. So like in the midst of your trials, you just uh, Abba, you know, something like this, you know, don't take me out of this. But help me to help me to to know the purpose of this testing and how I can be refined and what's the lesson to be learned here, Father. You know, th those are the, I think those should be th those could be a little more uh, those kind of prayers. I think are a little more timely uh, in the midst of those things. And I'm talking to myself here too, by the way. 
So if you endure chastening, Elohim deals with you as sons. For what son is he whom the father chastens not? Not a good father, but of course we have a great father, so he's going to chasten us when we need it. But if you be without chastisement or of all our partakers, then you are bastards and not sons. A couple of verses down, verse 11, Hebrews 12. Now, no chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. And that's kind of what James is saying here. Count it all joy when you fall into these trials. Like, hallelujah. Hallelujah. I get the opportunity. And, of course, the fruit that he desires is our obedience and the fruit of the Spirit that we learn about in Galatians. But I put the challenge out there before. I challenge you and your children to to memorize Psalm 1. I think it's incredibly important. This is um, Psalm 1 is, is more like a parable that unlocks so many parables. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the Torah of Yahuwah, and in his Torah does he meditate day and night. And he should be like a tree planted by the rivers of water, that brings forth his fruit in his season. His leaf shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For Yahweh knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the sinners, that's right, shall perish. Or ungodly. All right. Another one, Matthew 13, 24 through 30. Another parable he put he forth unto them, saying, the kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field, but while enemy slept, well, I'm sorry, but while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said unto him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? From whence then has it tares? He said unto them, An enemy has done this. The servants said unto him, Will you then that we go and gather them up? But he said, No. Lest while you gather up the tares, you root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather you together first the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them. But gather the wheat into my barn. You know, one interesting thing about wheat and tares, uh, if you weren't familiar, tare is a it's like a copy of wheat, but it brings forth no fruit. Uh, when, when, it first, when the blades first come up, they look the same. They're growing. They look the same. The stalks, it's not until the fruit is produced is when the tares make themselves known. One of the telltale signs is when, so when the wheat comes up, as the fruit starts to grow, it gets heavy and it bends over. Kind of like in, you can almost, th I think of it as like humility, like just bowing down. The tear sticks straight up because there's no fruit. It's not heavy up there. Uh, and so it stays, stands straight up kind of like in a prideful way. Um, it also reminds me of, of what we, we talked about last week's Torah portion. Um, I'm pretty sure we mentioned it then, but in the book of Sirach, it says, uh, it either says the greater you are or the more wisdom you acquire, the more humble you need to be. And I really believe that in these end times, as we're beginning to show fruit, um, that we need to continue to humble ourselves. And the parable about the wheat and tares, I always thought was about the difference between um, those who have faith and obedience and those who have faith and maybe no obedience. Um, kind of the distinction between people walking in the way and mainstream Christianity. But the more 
the more I, I'm hanging around, um, the more I really believe that this parable was actually for people in the in the, in the call out assembly. I'm talking about people that have faith and, and obedience. But the longer we do this, the more we see rotten fruit or no fruit being born on some people and they kind of just make themselves known by the way that they have so discord with people um how there's no love there's no joy peace patience kindness meekness uh self-control a lot of these uh, qualities of the fruits of the spirit that we see a lack of and uh well we know we know our, our heavenly father the the great gardener is the inspector and uh, we'll inspect all things. And so I'm sharing this in love to everyone who, who's listening uh, to inspect your fruit uh, because there's going to be a big inspection at the end and the ones that are not bearing fruit. And I believe that's Psalm 1 fruit, people that are meditating in the Torah day and night. And number two, applying it to their lives. Number three, people that have the fruits of the Spirit. I believe the fruits of the Spirit are equally as important. People that display love and joy, and shalom, and patience, and kindness, and meekness, and temperance, and long-suffering, um, self-control. I'm probably missing one still, but you know what I mean. He said, he said, an enemy has done this. The servant said unto him, will you then that we go and gather them up? But he said, no, lest while you gather up the tares, you root up also the wheat with them. Let both, both grow into, together until the harvest, and in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather you together first the tares and bind them in bundles and burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Speaking about being fruit inspectors, Matthew seven fifteen through 20, Beware of false prophets or false teachers, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. And we can display the fruits of our lips. Uh, we know that that's one in um, Hebrews 13 is one of the... Um, Oops, it says it right here. By him, uh, this is Hebrews thirteen fifteen. By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to Elohim continually. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. So what comes out of our mouth is fruit. You shall know them by their fruits. Also your actions, uh, your deeds, even your thoughts. Obviously, we can't judge each other's thoughts because we can't hear that, but Yah can. But do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that brings not forth good fruit is hewn or cut down and cast into the fire. This is what our Messiah says. This is not what I'm saying. So a lot of people want, you know, want to be like, oh, you're judging people, you're judging Christians. I'm not judging anyone. I'm just sharing what the scriptures say. And the scripture says that people that don't bring forth good fruit are cut down and thrown into the fire. So I would say this is a great time to inspect your fruits. It's hard to look within yourself, but pray to Yah, ask Him. Be honest with yourself and, and maybe in prayer to Him and, and have a really an open mind and be like, Abba, if, if I am not bringing forth good fruit or if I'm not displaying fruit or if I've got some things I don't work on, show me, help me. And know that he probably will answer. And sometimes that answer comes through trial or tribulation. But do you really want it? And that's where I really think that we can abide in those words where James is like, hey, count it joy when you fall into these trials. Why? Because when you persevere, you're going to come out on the other end a better person. When I say better, I'm talking about, you know, according to the Most High. 
Okay, wow. Uh, we spent quite a bit on two, three verses. Let's keep going. Book of Nazarim 9.32 I come to build a new temple. And if you say, these are good teachings, and take them to your heart, but tomorrow revile your neighbor and deceive your kinsmen, you are an unstable brick. This is kind of what James was talking about. Uh, you know, wavering, tossed to and fro. If the temple be built with such material, surely it will collapse and those within it will perish. Is it not better if it were never built? If you say, but I'm weak, then examine your defects and take the first step to stability. But examination is a waste of time unless leading to rectification. So this is kind of what I was sharing a second ago about introspection, looking within yourself and be like, what am I missing? Am I missing something? Am I doing something just horribly wrong? Am I, have I been displaying good fruits with my brothers and sisters? What about even in the outside world? But I, I like this part right here. But I, but I, if you say I'm weak, and this is really, uh, again, I, I'm not, I'm not wanting to speak badly about mainstream Christianity, but that's really the 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 whole theme of it is, is this is I mean, to correct me if I'm wrong, is the the base the the basics of the teachings out there is, uh, we're you know, we are a fallen people, fallen race, and we're, we can't help ourselves. We can't walk in the law. Nobody can do it. Only he can do it. So we rest in him and look at his righteousness. And that makes us righteous. That's what they teach. I don't believe that. I don't, I don't believe that doctrine. Now, do I believe that Messiah can wash us clean and cleanse us and reconcile us back to him? And all? Of course, absolutely. That's the basics of, of, of belief. But this thought process is when, when it says, but I am weak, I, what I think about is, oh, nobody can keep the law. It's too hard. Nobody can do it. Israel couldn't do it, which I disagree with because if you think about it, if when you say that, if that were true, then our Heavenly Father would be... Um, unfair because he gave them a law and he punished them for not keeping the law so he if he gave them a law that they couldn't keep and punish them for it that would be incredibly unfair and that's why it's obviously not true you can't keep it luke 1 will tell you that um john the baptist's parents zechariah and elizabeth they said they were perfect walking blameless in the law the point is this is the wrong attitude. I'm weak. I'm 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 fallible. You're not. So I'm just going to rest in your works. No. He says, "Examine your defects." So okay, if you are weak, examine your defects and take the first step to stability. So gird up your loins like a man or a woman of Yah, and let's take steps towards rectification. Whatever it is. Uh, you know, you're addicted to to drugs or whatever. You can do it. You have a problem with self-control and, and, and you're incredibly overweight. I'm weak. I can't. You can. He can do it. He can help you. You can change your mind. The renewing of your mind, Romans 12. But examination is a waste of time unless leading to rectification. This book, what I love about the book of Nazarene is it's a book of doing. Like, it's not just talking about fixing things. It's like, do it. Take the steps towards, like, take the action towards um, rect uh, rectification. I love it. Absolutely love it. So the correction itself, let the correction help us walk the narrow path, not fleeing from it. Like we we're talking, or talking about earlier with the, the parable of the seeds. Some people saw the, the, the tribulation. They're like, ah, I'm out of here. 
back to Hebrews 12, 11 through 13. Now, no chastening for the present seems to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised by it. So wherefore, so because of this, so thinking about all this, lift up the hands which hang down, like, oh, and the feeble knees, oh, right? And make straight paths for your feet lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but but let it rather be healed. So it's like, because this chastening, let it be correction to keep you on the path and to never deviate. First Peter 2, 5 says, You also as living stones are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to Elohim by Yahushua HaMashiach. Which, once again, I love this because he's like, I'm here to build a new temple. And he can't build it with unstable bricks. He can't build it with bricks that don't fit together. We can't build it with bricks that have no shalom with each other. And all people, all, all those bricks want to do is talk about how the other bricks don't, aren't like that brick. If you're catching what I'm saying. Chapter 9, verse 33. I call you to serve no mean cause. This is no little thing. This is not a light matter. The cause that was before us, it's life and death. It's not a mean thing. It's not a, this is not mean like, oh, you're mean to me. This is mean like little. I call you to serve no mean cause, but to stand beside me and claim your inheritance. Paul says that we're going to be co-inheritors with him. Those who dispute the claim are the ones I reject, and you must set your faces against them even as I do. Come and inherit the incorruptible glory, which is in heaven, even as flesh is on earth. The way is narrow and difficult for no one who has not been tempted or, or or tried can attain his word for no one who has not been tempted and tried can attain, attain his reward and here's kind of a passage i wanted to kind of bring what we we're talking about earlier with that tribulation is necessary trial is necessary for our faith we're tested bricks if he's building a new temple each brick is tested to make sure it's sure it's good whole what if it's what if it's an unstable brick the whole wall will come down what if there's a big brick sorry a brick with a crack in it how's that how sturdy is that wall going to be let's read two ezra six fifty five through 7 16 and with the mindset of why why is it going to be so hard and then ezra asked this question sorry um fidgeting i this is my allergy season Second Ezra six fifty five through seven sixteen. All this I have spoken before you, O Yahweh, because you have said that it was for us that you did create this world. As for the other nations which have descended for Adam from Adam, you have said that they are nothing, and that they are like spittle, and you have compared their abundance to a drop from a, bro- a bucket. And now, O Yahweh, behold these nations which are reputed as nothing, domineer over us and devour us. But we, your people, whom you have called your firstborn, only begotten, zealous for you, and most dear, have been given into their hands. If the world has indeed been created for us, why do we not possess our world as an inheritance? How long will this be so? We could literally ask the same question. We're, we're, we're supposed to be followers of the king, the king of this whole world. Why are we treated so unfairly, unjustly? Why do these ungodly people rule over us why aren't we in our inheritance chapter 7 when i had finished speaking these words the angel who had been sent to me on the former nights was sent to me again and he said to me rise ezra 
and listen to the words that I have come to speak to you. I said, Speak, my master. And he said to me, There is a sea set in a wide expanse, so that it is broad and vast, but it has an entrance set in a narrow place, so that it is like a river. If anyone then wishes to reach the sea, to look at it, or to navigate it, how can he come to the broad part unless he passes through the narrow part? Another example. There is a city built and set on a plain, and is full of all good things. But the entrance to it is narrow and set in a precipitous place, so that there is fire on the right hand and deep water on the left. So if it's like you're walking this narrow road and there's fire on one side and, and you know deep ocean on your right, it's a dangerous place to be. And there's only one path lying between them, that is, between the fire and the water, so that only one man can walk upon that path. If now that city is given to a man for an inheritance, how will the heir receive his inheritance unless he passes through the danger set before him? I said, he cannot, master. He said to me, so just like that, so also is Israel's portion. For I made the world for their sake, and when Adam transgressed my statutes, what had been made was judged. And so the entrances of this world were made narrow and sorrowful and toilsome. They are few and evil, full of dangers and involved in great hardships. But the entrances of the greater world are broad and safe and really yield the fruit of immortality. Therefore, unless the living pass through the difficult and vain experiences, they can never receive those things that have been reserved for them. But now, why are you disturbed, seeing that you are to perish? And why are you moved, seeing that you are mortal? And why have you not now considered in your mind what is to come rather than what is now present? And we can say the same things. Why are we dwelling on so many of the negative things in this world and all this and this when we know what's coming? We know we know it's coming. Messiah said it would. He told us these things ahead of time so that we wouldn't be fearful. And, you know, one thing, uh, the timing of this book, uh, a lot of us do believe we're in the end times. And just in the first, this is part 12, I think in, in part 12, a main theme for this book in general has been life is hard. Uh, deal with it because it's good for us. It refines us. It brings you closer to the most high. And uh, yeah, like, so like, why is it? And so I think the timing of this book coming out right now is, is very vital because what 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 kind of days are ahead of us? What if we do have some really hard times? And right now, what we think is really hard is like, but nothing. And I feel like the words this book can permeate into our souls and we can be ready for the time ahead. And, and don't get me wrong. I, I'm not I'm not trying to prop this book up to be more than uh, you know, anything else, because you can still have that preparation in the 66 book canon. And through the Gospels, and Messiah says plenty in there. You know, in this world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. Uh, there's, there's there's plenty of passages in here. It's just for me, this book puts it in such simple language to help me understand. I'm I'm a simple person. I've never said I'm some great scholar. Y'all know that. I, I'm I don't have um, uh, vast uh, vocabulary, and 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 I speak very plainly. So for me, who speaks plainly, I also learn plainly a lot easier as well and so this book does that for me and, and you know if if we are going to see uh these really rough days ahead um i do believe that we escape the wrath of the most high but it doesn't mean that we're not going to have tribulation matter of fact the assembly has had tribulation since messiah was on this earth teaching the apostles faced uh, persecution they are almost all of them martyred um and of course, the persecution of Nero and, you know, all throughout the centuries in the, the Catholic Church and what they did to the true believers. I mean, there's been tribulation since uh, since Messiah left. 
when I say left, went to, went to the Father. Anyways, just wanted to share that with you. But again, I, I believe this book is, is vital for preparing us for the hard times ahead. Book of Nazarene, chapter 9, verse 34. He that is near to me is close to a blazing fire. Get hot and may get burned. But he who withdraws from the heat withdraws from heaven. So like that old saying, you know, if you can't take the heat, get out of the kitchen. I mean, Messiah is kind of saying that in in different way. He, that, Let me read that again. He that's close to me or near to me is close to a blazing fire and may get burned. But he who withdraws from the heat withdraws from heaven. Some have said the yoke of the Torah sits heavy on our shoulders. But I tell you, I come not to lighten, but to magnify the responsibility. Like this is what Torah teachers have been teaching over the last 10, 20 years is, hold on, if you actually listen to Messiah's words, he, he came to increase the the, the strictness. Because like he says, it's, it's not just about not murdering your brother. It's like, because you may refrain from murdering him, but if you're sitting there dwelling on how much you hate him and how much you want to see that person just you know suffer or die or whatever, it's a rotten, that's a rotten like attitude. Like, think about it. W- would you want to spend eternity with that person that's never fixed that or corrected that? Of course not. Right? And so in many other ways, he is magnified the responsibility. And that's why I, I said before, this is one of the most pro-Torah books outside of the canon that I've ever I've ever read and it's it's confirming uh, what the Ruach has been teaching us many of us some of you have been uh, understanding this for a couple weeks some of you a couple months a couple years a couple decades it's still pretty recent but this book has been confirming that our belief is correct to have faith and obedience is correct Moshe brought the Torah which says not to kill but I say, anyone who releases anger on his brother without just cause shall not escape judgment. So Messiah, he's the purifier, the inspector. Malachi 3, 1 through 7, Behold, I will send my messenger or angel or however you want to translate that, and he shall prepare the way before me. It's John the Baptist. And the master whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in. Behold, he shall come, says Yahweh Sabaoth. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. So a refiner's fire. This is how metals were rid of their impurities. Paul talks about it in Second um, Timothy 2, I believe. I think uh, somewhere around 19 or 18, uh, 20. But in the great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and earth, some to honor and some to dishonor. So it's like, and it says here, if a man therefore purge himself of these iniquity, he shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified and meet for the master's use and prepared unto every good work. So just like Isaiah said, send me, I'll go. But anyways, the point is, he refines us in like fuller's soap. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. He shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer unto Yahweh an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto Yahweh, as in the days of old and as in former years. And I will come near to you in judgment. And I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers and against the adulterers and against false swearers and against those that oppress the hireling and his wages, the widow and the fatherless. 
and that turn aside the stranger from his right, and fear not me, says Yahweh Sebaot, for I am Yahweh, I change not, therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Even from the days of your fathers ye are gone away from mine ordinances, and have not kept them. Return unto me, and I will return unto you says Yahweh Sebaot. And this is this is the key here. You know, ter- return unto me. Re- repentance, true repentance isn't just a change of mind. This is a change of behavior. This is a whole change of everything about you. And those of us who are really born again, we understand that. We're completely different people. So thinking about the fruit inspector, as we mentioned earlier, Matthew 3, 1 through 12. In those days came John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he that was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare ye the way of the master, make his path straight. The same John had his raiment of camel's hair and a leather girdle about his loins, and his meat was locust and wild honey. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan and were baptized of him in, in the Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bring forth therefore fruits, meet for repentance, and think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that Elohim is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. And now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which brings not forth good fruit is cut down and cast into the fire. Here's your second witness. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he that comes after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Ruach HaKodesh and with fire. And we know that um, the spirit of truth is supposed to uh, convict us of sin, and lead us unto all truth. And that's the purifying with the fire, whose fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his floor. Remember that, that parable we read earlier, not sorry? And gather his wheat into the garner, but he'll burn up the chaff which un, with unquenchable fire. So if you think about it, remember that parable of the wheat and the tares? This is in his field. So even the tares are in his field, thinking they're one of his, but they're not bearing fruit. They're actually cut down and thrown into the fire. Hard times. Don't want to be part of that. Not stream 935. The Torah you have condemns adultery. But I tell you that if any man looks upon a woman with fornication in mind, he is no less guilty. For it is what a man thinks that will lead him to glory or decay. Why? Because thoughts become actions. Thoughts well up in your heart. And out of the heart, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So, your words, your your, your your thoughts change who you are. And that's why we, we, quote, we quoted it earlier, but in Romans 12, this is a, Romans 12, 1 through 2 is a must, it is a must to understand. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of Elohim, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto Elohim, which is your reasonable service. And listen, and be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind. So your thoughts need to change that you may prove what is that good and acceptable, perfect will of Elohim. And so you're thinking to yourself, well, Adam, how do I change my thoughts? Well, I'm glad you asked because Proverbs 16 gives us the steps for that. 
The preparations of the heart in man and the answer of the tongue is from Yahweh. So what wells in your heart, what comes there, it's from Yah. All the ways of a man are clean in his own eyes, but Yahweh weighs the spirits. So you want change? Listen to this. Commit your works unto Yahweh, and your thoughts shall be established. Hallelujah. Thoughts. Taking captive every thought. He who is pure in love does not defile his heart by looking at another woman with fornication in view. You want to learn more about fornication? We've got a couple of... Um, uh, a couple of resources for you. I got a couple of playlists on YouTube. Uh, these links will be in the in the uh, study notes that's in the description box of this video. But you want you want some help with lust and fornication? Check out the Testament of Reuben, uh, the Testament of Judah, and I think yeah, those two, those two are good. These are the Testament of the twelve patriarchs. It's, a, it's the last words of all the 12 sons, uh, the 12 uh, sons of Jacob. And so this one, Breaking Lusts, this is another one. It's called Breaking Lusts or Addictions. Uh, so if you need some help with that area, uh, those are some resources for you. Praise be to Yah. Okay, so let's go to 36, 936. The Torah you have says no man shall put his wife away unless he gives her a bill of dis divorcement. But I tell you that whoever seeks to put away his wife except for adultery or she is found unchaste, we'll look at that word in a second, places her on the path of adultery and is therefore not guiltless. What Yahuwah has blended in Ruach, let no man seek to sever. But those joined in body and not in spirit are not sanctified. So basically what it's saying is marriages that are purely of the flesh, are not sanctified in his eyes. We read this earlier a couple portions ago, a couple weeks ago, probably a couple months ago now, um, that marriage is the blending of the flesh and the spirit together. Um, now it says here, no man shall put away his wife unless he give her a bill of divorcement. So when we learn about in Deuteronomy 24, which is about divorce, um, there's two there's 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 two steps. Um, let him write her a bill of divorcement and give it in her hand and send her out of his house. Well, three three steps really. And so what the Pharisees were doing is they were sending women out of their houses but not giving them a bill of divorcement, uh, putting them in a tough position, not letting them uh, be able to remarry and, and thus affecting their lives greatly. And uh, a lot, as the story goes, a lot of the women ended up remarrying anyways, and that's why Messiah says you're putting them on the path of adultery, or in in, in the Matthew portion or the Matthew um, the Matthew equivalent says cause her to commit adultery. But uh, I want to look at this word unchaste. So either except for adultery, or she is found unchaste, and uh, unchaste. Um, so not chaste, not virtuous, not pure. What's a virtuous mean? Conforming to moral and ethical principles, morally excellent or upright. So uh, there's also a um, there's also a video. If you want to learn more about um, divorce, um, there's an excellent teaching by Steve at MTOI. Just search divorce. MTOI, and you'll find out that 
a lot of Catholic false doctrine regarding uh, divorce permeated into Protestantism and really is still well and alive today. But it's really just like anything else. It's a mistranslation of the word here and there, and it, it's put forth a, a uh, completely wrong doctrine about divorce. Not a good thing, but according to Yah is allowed and according to Messiah when you really uh, look at what he's actually saying. And he says it because of these things, except for adultery or she's found unchaste. So, chaste. We know that. That has to do with sexual immorality, but also she's not virtuous. So, not virtuous. Not pure. All right. Not serene, 937. And also, it should be said... So really, a uh, husband and wife who are achad or one, again, it's not just becoming one in the flesh, but also in the ruach. And you don't, if you don't know if you are or not, petition the Most High. Praise Yah. 9.37 of Nazarene. The Torah you have says, You shall not swear falsely or break an oath, though, if you vow something to the service of Yahuwah, the pledge must be kept. I tell you never to swear any oath, but confine yourself to a straightforward yes or no. It is needless to say more, for the word of a godly man is more binding than the most solemn oath sworn by another. If you are not a godly man, then doubtless your word and your uh, and your oath would be worthless anyway. So, um, this, uh, this, just this passage just needs to reconfirm with us that we need to be men and women of our word even the small details and i'm learning is even especially with the children if you tell them something like hey you know we'll, we'll do that next week do it next week and make sure you do it hey you know not, not today we'll, we'll we'll do it tomorrow do it tomorrow make sure you do it and again the little things with each other i'll call you tomorrow do it I'll text you the, the information. Do it. The little things we, we think are so insignificant, but our words matter. And if people can't count on our words on the little matters, how can they trust us with the big matters? We need to be trustworthy men and women, especially um, especially with each other. When I say that, my brothers and sisters, but what about the workplace? What about your family? What about your extended family? What about your acquaintances? Can they trust every word that comes out of your mouth? Ask yourself that. I'm asking myself that too. 9.38. Uh, also, it, it says here, I uh, just want to confirm, I think what I believe Messiah was really saying, Ecclesiastes 5, 4 through 6, when you would vow a vow unto Elohim, defer not to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay that which you have vowed. Better it is that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Listen, suffer not your mouth to cause your flesh to sin. Neither say you before the angel that it was an error. Wherefore should Elohim be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? So surely we don't want to be fools in the eyes of Yah and before the angels. Nazarene 938, if your eye give cause for complaint, leading you towards lewdness or obscenity, pluck it out. So this kind of expands on what we read about in Matthew 4. Yeah, um, it, it, your eye causes you to stumble or sin. 
Buck it up. It is of greater advantage to suffer disfigurement on earth than to be cast into the depths to suffer it there. If your right hand give cause for complaint, cut it off. For if your body be maimed on earth, you bear it a little time, but surely do nothing to prevent it remaining intact in the place of glory. The Torah you have says, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. But I tell you to love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you and pray for those who deceive or persecute you. For if you only give love for love, this cannot be claimed as a meritorious thing. When even criminals return the love of those who love them. If you only repay good with good, dealing fairly only with those who treat you likewise, how can merit be claimed for this, which is no more than criminals do? It is the same if you give if you give only to those who give to you, for criminals give to their own kind. Can you stand by and let it be said that criminals treat each other better than do godly men? And this is just once again where I just call on the body of Messiah to check yourself. Um, let's check each other. Let's check ourselves. Listen, I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, coming into this movement, and what I'm about to tell you is not for complaint. I know what I signed up for being uh, in, the, in the public arena, being in a public ministry and, and whatnot. But I'll tell you, the worst I've ever been treated in my entire life is not by unbelievers, not by even Christians that don't like what we do. No, it's by people who claim to have faith and obedience have treated me so nasty that I, I just have never I was never treated that way living a secular uh, and sinful life. No, no one, no one would talk to me that way. Um, so it's just very interesting that he says here, uh, can you stand by and let it be said that criminals treat each other better than do godly men? And I'm here to tell you uh, that happens today because I see it. I see it all the time. <laughs> it's like, I just wonder, I just wonder, you know, is, is how does y'all feel about that when ungodly people that, that, Ungodly people treat each other better than a lot of Yah's people treat each other, how they treat each other. It's just, it's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Exodus 23, 4 through 5, and you'll see here that this is a Torah principle to take care of your enemy. This isn't something new that Messiah brought in um, 2,000 years ago. This is something way older. And I'm, not, I'm not taking away from Messiah because I, I believe Messiah is the one that gave the law and anyways, uh, to Moses, but... Exodus 23, 4 through 5, If you meet your enemy's ox or his ass going astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. If you see the ass of him that hates you lying under his burden and would forbear to help him, you shall surely help with him. Proverbs 25, 21 through 22, If your enemy be hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he be thirsty, give him water to drink. For you shall heap coals of fire upon his head, and Yahuwah shall reward you. And hopefully this is fire of refinement. That should be like a that they should be like checked in their heart and be like, like oh man he did that for me he or she did that for me I would have never done that for them because I hated them but how can I hate someone like this? Maybe these are some of the things that happen. Second Kings six twenty through twenty three and it came to pass when they were coming into Samaria that Elisha said open the eyes of these men that they may see pause this is uh, the king of Assyria sending sending armies uh, to go get Elisha. And then, of course, you know, the people were scared. Oh, my goodness, we're, we're being surrounded. And Yahweh opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. 
And the king of Israel said unto Elisha, when he saw them, my father, shall I smite them? Shall I smite them? And then just also, uh, Elisha ended up striking them with blindness. And then he led them all the way to the king of, of Samaria, the enemy. And this is what the king of Israel is like. <laughs> We've got all of them right here. They're all blind. We can just kill them all. And he's saying to Elisha, shall I smite them? Shall I smite them? And Elisha, he answered, you shall not smite them. Would you smite those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. And he prepared great provision for them. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. So the bands of Assyria came no more into the land of Israel. So, just how we should treat our enemies. You have someone persecuting you, doing this or that, but to you, behind your back, gossiping, slandering, pray for them. Just pray for them. I want to read something else. Testament of Benjamin. Uh, we're going to read chapter 5, verses 2 through 4. Okay. Chapter 5, verses 2 through 4. If you continue to do good, even the unclean spirits will flee from you, and wild animals will fear you. For where someone has within himself respect for good works and has light in the mind, darkness will flee away from that person. If anyone unashamedly attacks a holy man, he repents. Since the holy man shows mercy to the one who abused him and maintains silence. This is doing good unto your enemy. And this should be what the enemy does when they see what you do. For if anyone unashamedly attacks a holy man, he repents because the holy man shows mercy to the one who abused him and maintains silence. Try that on for size. And if anyone betrays a righteous man, the righteous man prays. Even though for a brief time he may be humbled, later he will appear far more glorious, as happened with Joseph, my brother. Praise Yah. Nazarim 940. Love your enemies, but not their faults. Love those who hate you, but concede nothing to their wickedness. Give without expectation of return. Then only can you lay claim to goodness and be called a servant of Yahweh. Another one. So this, I love this because this shows that we can love our enemies and love those who hate us and persecute us. But we don't need to love their faults. It's that old saying, you know, hate the sin, not the sinner. No matter what, what you think they're doing wrong, they're just deceived. Whether it be someone, you know, part of the LG community or whatever there's still a person there's still a soul that was supposed to be made in the image of elohim unfortunately they're in the in the, in the image of of someone else but that doesn't mean they can't repent do you love them are you here to judge them or are you here to help them see the truth are you here to fish them out or are you here to smack them around but so it says love your enemies not their faults Love those who hate you, but concede nothing to their wickedness. So, you know, people, you know, often said, uh, well, Messiah, you know, he was dining with sinners. So that means I can just hang out at the bar, right? And hang out where the sinners are. Eh, no, that's why. And this is why I love this because it's, it's love with boundaries. This verse right here is love with boundaries. And this often gets brought up with, um, We've, we've had a couple studies about honoring your parents. In the book of Sirach, uh, or also known as Ecclesiasticus, chapter 3, talks a lot about honoring your parents. And 
the the blessings for honoring them and the curses for not. And some people are like, well, you know, my parents did this, or my parents do this or that, or you know, they're dangerous around my kids. They, you know, this is another area you can have love, but with boundaries. So love your enemies, but not their faults. Love those who hate you, but concede nothing to their wickedness. So it's okay to love with boundaries, if that makes sense. So love that one. That's room 940. Oh, and then the last one, give without expectation of return. So we know, for a lot of us from experience, that when you give, it comes back to you seven times. But if you're like, aha, I found the trick. I'm going to give and I'm going to get seven times back. No. Give without expectation of return. Then only you can lay claim to goodness and be called a servant of Yahuwah. I have not noticed this. Here's the Matthew 5, 17 through 19 parallel in the book of Nazarene. And watch this. I have not come to abolish the Torah or to change the teachings of the prophets, but to complete them, adding any necessary clarification and interpreting them to the understanding of men. But the time has come to ask, when will they be put into practice? When will men bring Yahweh out of the temple and make him a participant in their daily lives? When will men carry these things in their hearts and stop paying them lip service? This is part, of course, of the, the inauguration of the new covenant, beginning to put his laws on our hearts. Praise Yah. I love this. When do they actually put into practice? And that's the difference between someone who hears the law and does the law. And we know what Paul says about that in Romans 2.13. He says, for the hearers of the law, the Torah, for, I'm sorry, for not the hearers of the Torah are just before Elohim, but the doers of the Torah shall be justified. So when will they put these things into practice? doesn't matter how many uh, extra biblical books you read. If you can't put any of that stuff you learned into practice, then what good is it? It's no good. You're just reading. We read that earlier. Um, where was that? Mm, yeah. This is kind of a parallel verse here. If you say, but I am weak, then examine your defects and take the first step to stability. But examination is a waste of time and let us lead to rectification. And I would say reading... The scriptures is a waste of time if you're not putting them into practice. Much like if you call upon Messiah for salvation, but don't do anything he says, then you're a hypocrite. That's what he said earlier. Remember that? He says, Woe to all who hear my words, but twist their meaning to suit their convenience. If a man says he is with me, but does not abide by my teachings, then he's a hypocrite. If he says, but I live in circumstances where this doesn't apply. I'm not in Jerusalem. He's a liar. Far better that such as these say, we are against you, for until they do, the world will not be reborn. So back down here, where are we at? We're at 42, 41? Right? So when will they put this into practice? When will men carry these things in their hearts and stop paying them lip service? So this is very interesting when we look at Matthew 15 and compare what Messiah charge the Pharisees with. You'll see, it's funny, you'll see, not funny, it's interesting, you'll see hearts and lips, lip service. That's exactly what he accused them of. Matthew 15. You hypocrites. Verse 7. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, this people draws close unto me with their mouth and honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Why? 
but in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. And this is why I continue to say we've got to get away from Judaism. Just like we've, 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 a lot of us have heard the call to come out of mainstream Christianity. Well, I'm here to say just a big of call, or if not a bigger call, get out of Judaism. Because this is what they're, this is what they are into. They are into man-made laws, the Talmud, Mishnah, all that stuff that still is very prevalent today. And has permeated into even the set-apart faith. Faith in Messiah and obedience to the Torah. So, when will, marry men, when, when will men carry these things into their hearts and stop paying them lip service? Oh, I love you, I love you, I love you, but I don't show it. Like, enough of that. Just like in a marriage. Oh, I love you, I love you, but I don't show it, ever. Like, what good is that? What kind of relationship is that? Speaking of the new covenant, Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days come, says Yahuwah, that I'll make a new covenant with the house of Yasharel and with the house of Yahuda, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke, although I was a husbandman unto them, says Yahuwah. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Yasharel after those days, says Yahuwah. I will put my Torah in their inward parts, and write it in their hearts and will be their Elohim and they shall be my people. Now, I do believe that there's, a, there's always a big debate whether we're in the new covenant or not. Are we, is the old covenant still in effect? Is it just the new covenant? Is the old one done away with? I believe that there's elements of both. I believe there's elements of the old covenant that exists today. Uh, and there's also uh, elements of the new covenant because we'll see here uh, that people wanting to walk out Torah out of nowhere, I believe, is is him putting his Torah on our hearts. Now, uh, I, I, I have some good people, good friends of mine who I love, uh, also in ministry, um, that say the evidence of Torah being written on our heart is that we memorize all the Torah and we keep it perfectly. Uh, that may be the, the final uh, um, form of it and the final realization of it, but I, I believe that I can honestly look you in the eye and say, I believe that his Torah is being written on my heart. Because I, I can honestly reflect on my, my past life um, that I, I remember what I used to dwell on. I used to dwell on things of lust and greed and and lies and deceit and all sorts of things. And, and that's what my, was on my heart and on my mind. That's what came out of my mouth, my actions. And I can look at myself now and honestly be like, I'm a different person. I want to keep the law. Not because I'm going to get some shiny crown for it one day, but because it's the right thing to do. It, 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 it feels right to walk in this, this Torah. There's something ancient and good about walking in his way. And to me, the only way that that can be done is if my heart has been circumcised and the heart of stone has been turned into a heart of flesh, uh, part of the things we see in Ezekiel 36 of the giving of the Spirit and the new heart. Um, so yeah, so anyways... And then it says, and then they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother saying, no, Yahuwah, for they shall all know me. We're definitely not there. So what I believe, in short, if you're wondering where I'm at, I believe we have elements of the old covenant. We, all, we do know clearly that uh, there's been a change in the priestly regimen, which is really what the book of Hebrews is all about. It's not about doing away with the law, but it's a change in the priesthood. And if there's a change in the priesthood, there needs to also be a change in the Torah regarding the priesthood, which, of course, includes the, the sacrifices and, and things like that. Um, but we have to also be, be 
honest here and say, this part hasn't happened, which is sad because that means one day my job will be over because th this is basically what I do. Hmm. Um, but obviously, we, we have to still teach people to know Yahuwah because a lot of people don't know him. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says Yahuwah, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So I believe Messiah came uh, to uh, strengthen the covenant as we see in Daniel 9, and he shall confirm or strengthen, he shall enlarge the covenant with many. Uh, for one week, in the midst of the week, he shall be cut off, but not for himself. You know. Anyways, um, I believe Messiah came to confirm the covenant, but also to uh, begin the new covenant, to... to um, inaugurate it and I don't think it fully comes into effect until his return but obviously we have new elements of it with the Melchizedek priesthood and the ability for us to go beyond the veil uh, to approach the, the blood by the throne of Messiah to have forgiveness through him um, and I believe that what he did inaugurated the new covenant just like he said he, he was doing at the Passover dinner or the Last Supper whatever you want to call it uh, and the offering of his blood on the cross was the inauguration with that blood. Uh, he gave us the Holy Spirit, which is like a seal of promise, is what Paul says. And I believe that seal of promise is like an engagement. I believe we're engaged, ready to be fully brought into that new covenant. That's just kind of where I'm at. So uh, Ezekiel 36, 25 through 28, you'll see a little remnant of it here. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and you shall be clean from all your filthiness, and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do that. And so this is why I believe that the law is being written on our hearts, because, again, I, I really believe that I have a different heart today than I did uh, 10 years ago. Different, completely different heart. I'm not talking about the actual pumping. You know, I didn't get a heart replacement. I'm talking about um, the, the spiritual aspect of the heart. And it says, I'll cause you. And so I believe that's an effect of the law being written in our heart. It cause us to walk in his statutes. And ye shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers, and ye shall be my people, and I will be your Elohim. So we see even here, there's elements of this not being uh, fully realized yet, or the, the, the new covenant fully being um, And then in Hebrews, oh, uh, let's see. So here in Hebrews 8.13, in that he says, A new covenant, he has married the first old. Now that which decays and waxes old is ready to vanish away. doesn't mean it's vanished, but it's ready to. And I believe that's going to be at the appearing of Messiah. And the new covenant will be fully brought into effect at that time. Again, I believe we're engaged with the new covenant is kind of where I'm at. All right, back to Nazarim 9.42. I say with certainty, so long as earth and the heavens above it remain, not even the smallest particle shall be deducted from the Torah until the purpose it serves has been completed. So again, now we're kind of back to this Matthew 5.17 through 20 passage here. So he says with certainty, so long as earth and the heavens above it remain, not even the smallest particle shall be deducted from the Torah until the purpose it serves has been completed. And again, the only known change that we have 
on record, on file, prophesied about many places is the changing of the priesthood ordinances and the animal sacrifices with blood. That's it. Um, therefore, if anyone tried to avoid even the least obligation imposed by the Torah or to set aside the slightest of its restrictions, you know, oh, it's just the food laws, you know, or teach others to do the same, he will be an insignificant thing in the life to come. But whoever lives by them, this is Torah talk here, living by it, you know, who, he who lives by it, whoever lives by them, leading others to do likewise, will achieve the greatest heights of glory. Now, let's pause here. Let's back up a second because this is quite a bit clearer than uh, what we get in Matthew 17 through Matthew 5, 17 through 19 because it says this, because I know I, I've heard a lot of people kind of like say this part right here. It says, whoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments and shall teach men to break commandments. Like, hey, it's okay to break commandments. He shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. So people are like, oh, well, hey, that person's getting in the kingdom because, I mean, even though he didn't keep the commandments and he taught others, hey, don't keep the commandments, he, he's still in the kingdom and he's the least. And then so they can play, they can play the, the humble karmic well. Hey, I don't, I don't mind being the least in heaven. But even without without the book of the Nazarene version in mind, uh, a good brother of mine, Stephen, pointed this out to me years ago, and it was like a boom, aha moment, epiphany. When Messiah comes, uh, all the kingdoms of the world become his. We see that in Revelation 11. We know it's his already, but right now we know that the devil has the power uh, to, to reign here for now. But it says here... Uh, Okay, no. So here, and the seventh, this is Revelation eleven fifteen. And the seventh angel sounded, and there was great voices in heaven saying, "The kingdoms of this world are become the kingdoms of our master, of, of our Yahuwah, and of his Messiah, and he shall reign forever and ever." So there's going to be a time where it's over. You reign of the kings, your reign is over. Messiah is here to take over. He, the, the whole earth is his. So when it says he shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven, well, if all the kingdoms of this world become the kingdom of Messiah. That means everything outside of the walls in the New Jerusalem are also his kingdom. People can be left outside of the gate and still be in his kingdom, if you will. But the overall point here is this is saying the same passage which with a lot greater clarity that, hey, hey, listen here. The Torah is not done away with. So let's re I want to read this again. I say with certainty, so long as earth and the heavens above it remain, not even the smallest particle shall be deducted from the Torah until the purpose it serves has been completed. Therefore, if anyone tries to avoid even the least obligation imposed by the Torah or to set aside the slightest of its restrictions or to teach others to do the same, like, hey, it's okay, just, you know, you can eat pork, whatever you want. He will be an insignificant thing in the life to come. Now, that is different or it may not be different, but it may be worded in a much clearer way that's like, Whoa, if you don't keep the commandments and you teach others that it's okay to not keep the commandments, you're going to be an insignificant thing in the life to come. Now, that is a whole different tune there. But whoever lives by them, leading others to do likewise, like, hey, keep the commandments. Because this is how we love him. And his commandments are not grievous. They're not, they're not hard. We'll achieve the greatest heights of glory. I don't know about you, but that's where I'd rather be. So this is, honestly, this is one of the most Torah observant verses I have ever read, period. 
And that's, again, one of the reasons I enjoy this book is because it confirms faith and Torah obedience. Plainly stated. Nazarim 9.43 Do all charitable acts privately, not displaying your righteousness to catch the eyes of others, for by doing so you void their benefits. Only those seeking public acclaim and hypocrites do these things ostentatiously, like publicly, like visible so that everybody sees it. Never seek publicity for your deeds or goodness, nor let it be forced on you. I assure you that those who do these things have their reward on earth, and nothing awaits them elsewhere. When setting out on an errand of goodness, keep your right hand in ignorance of the left hand's deeds. Do your deeds in secret, knowing they are not overlooked and will be duly rewarded. But do them without thought of reward, or they will lose their merit. So like when you do something, don't think of like, oh, Yahweh is going to reward me. Woo! Yeah. No, just do it. And, and that brings up a greater point. Why do you do things? Why do you give? Why do you help people? Why do you um, comfort people in their morning? Is it just to reap rewards? How empty. I don't want to be in a kingdom full of people that are empty and are just doing things for reward. Now, as we've stated before, Messiah said rewards are good. But if your focus is the reward, I think we've missed the whole point. Why do you do things? Why do you give? Don't you give because you know it's the right thing to do and and our Heavenly Father instructs us, hey, this is, if you want to do good in my sight, this is what you do. Don't we take care of widows and orphans and the fatherless uh, and the maimed and the blind and the, and the deaf because we want to just genuinely help somebody? So if that's truly the thought process, then it doesn't matter if anybody sees it. Matter of fact, we should make sure that we, they don't see us because that's when he says that's where the real reward comes. Why you do things is important. The motive behind what you do should be greatly important. If I can just share a little bit of my testimony and kind of the kind of just walking through this, because what what I'm about to share with you may not apply to your life, because not all of you run uh, a ministry, uh, and not all of you have been called a ministry, which is okay. We're, not everyone is, but I just want to share something from from my perspective. Uh, years ago, when I got called a ministry, I I, always, I said it in my mind that. It doesn't matter how big the ministry gets. It doesn't matter how much it grows. My mindset was like, if this helps a handful of people, five people, if all the labor put into this helps five people, is it worth it? Yes. And I was like, well, what about if it's three people? Yes. What if it, all the work you do just helps one person? Is it worth it? Well, yes. The obvious answer is yes, because each soul is precious. So, like, in my world... I, I made sure to set my mind that measuring the success of the ministry has nothing to do with numbers, subscriber counts, shares, likes. I think these are all traps. And so the reason I'm bringing this up is because even if you may not have a ministry, uh, there's there's a similar stumbling block with social, social media in general. You may not be a um, you may not be a uh, a teacher or whatever, but uh, you know there's just something about social media that. It makes you feel like you've accomplished something when you get the likes or the, um, the shares or, or whatever. My point being is is the the motive should always be goodness. The motive should always be serving our brothers and sisters. Our motive should always be serving the Father. And that's why I believe Messiah could plainly state the two greatest commandments 
is loving Yahweh and loving people. So if that's the direction of your life, if that is the, the, the moral compass of your life is to love Yah and to love people according to the way he commanded it, not the way we think that people should be loved or he should be loved, then I think we'll never go wrong. And I think in a very similar way, um, we see that when Messiah teaches, why are you worried um, about what you eat or, or what you clothe or, or, or where should we sleep? He said, and then he goes on to say, seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. And so he's saying like the focus of your life shouldn't be stuff, food and clothing and housing, you know, whatever. But he's like, if you make Yah the focus, if you make your obedience to me, you know, the focus, you're going to get these things anyways. You know what I mean? Does that make sense? Um, and, and the reason I brought up the ministry is because if, if the goal is public acclaim and popularity and things like that, your mind is going to be focused on that and it's going to, it's going to lead you to make decisions based off of that. What's popular, um, you know, let's just say with what's popular. Whereas if the goal is to truly serve him and serve people, then it's like, it, it, it's like, how am I trying to say this? Well, I'm kind of at a loss at words of how I really wanted to, to, to form that. But maybe, hopefully, you're, you're understanding what I'm saying here is that the motive, the motive is extremely important. Because you can do a whole bunch of good works, but if your motive of why you're doing those good works is off, he says it right there. Your reward's gone. And honestly, that's why I... I can really honestly look at refinement as a good thing for myself. And if Yah willing, I'm able to get into the kingdom of heaven. I think we're all, we're going to be very appreciative that all the bricks, if you will, all the people in that building have all been tried and tested and have good hearts. And so if you do things for, with the wrong motive, the wrong heart, there's still time to change. Goodness, if we can repent for murder and adultery and, and covetousness and all these in fornication, can we repent of having the wrong heart about giving? Yeah, I'd say so. Or the wrong heart about why we started ministry or why we started this or that. Sure. I'd say there's plenty of time. Praise yeah. I'd say plenty of time. I don't know when everything ends. But I'm just saying you've got time right now. The point is motive. Motive is important. And he sees your motives. So we better be careful. So we saw uh, these big words. Uh, so only those seeking public acclaim and hypocrites do these things ostentatiously. Um, I could try to give you the definition, but I think we'll just attracting or seeking to attract attention, admiration, or envy often by gaudiness or obviousness, overly elaborate or conspicuous. Like, hey, look at me. So only those seeking public acclaim and hypocrites do these things ostentatiously. So people only give to make sure everybody sees it, right? So point is, what I really wanted to, to bring that full circle is, if we set our minds to be Yah pleasers and not men pleasers, I, I don't think we'll ever go wrong. And that was my point of bringing up ministry is, if the mission remained helping people, the numbers don't matter. None of the other things matter. It doesn't because if numbers mattered, right? Then the then the the 
mega churches, they're getting it done. But we know that's not the case. So that can't be the measure. What's the measure? The intentions. The heart. Whether walking in righteousness or just walking with him for, you know, for fire insurance, as they say. And he knows. Paul said it, Galatians 1.10, For do I now persuade men or Elohim? Do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Mashiach. So we can't be men pleasers. First Thessalonians 2, 1 through 7. For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you, that it was not in vain. But even after that, we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi. We were bold in our Elohim to speak unto you the gospel of Elohim with much contention. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. But as we were allowed of Elohim to be put in trust with the good news, even so we speak not as pleasing men, but Elohim which tries our hearts. That's why Jeremiah was like, everybody mocks me. Everybody thinks I'm a fool. And it would just be easier for me if I just shut my mouth and didn't say any of these things. But he's like, there's a fire in my bones and I can't withhold it. I can't stop. That's someone pleasing Elohim and not men. For neither at any time used we flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness, Elohim is witness, nor of men sought we glory, neither of you, nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome, as the apostles of Mashiach. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherishes her children. Think about why did Satan fall? Why did Satan fall? Wasn't it because he desired the love and the attention and the, the glory and the esteem that Yahuwah got? Isn't that what he said? I will set my seat above the congregation uh, of the Most High. I will be like Yah. So he was taken. He was taken in his desire for fame and fortune. And he's got it. He's got all he wants right now. And those that follow him, they'll get it too. But it's only temporary. Okay. Uh, where are we at with time? Oh, wow. An hour and a half already. Whew. Okay. Um, I do. I think I want to try to go till verse 54. So a little bit longer. 944. Do not be like the hypocrites who pray in the sight of everyone. They are being rewarded now. Pray in solitude. For your father can be contacted from anywhere and is everywhere. Never use needless repetition or ramble on in the mistaken belief that the more you say, the more likely you are to be heard. Do not be a mere babbler of words, for prayer is not formed by words alone. Remember, your every need is known, so whatever is withheld may be for your own good. Prayer is contact between Ruach and Ruach, and should seek only to reinforce the strength of the Ruach. So, um... We did a quick study on prayer last Shabbat. Uh, it's called the Power of Prayer, and we uh, we dove into that. I, I actually didn't include this passage. I, I wish I would have. Later that day, I was like, "Oh man, I forgot about this one." But um, I want to say this: Do not be a mere babbler of words, for prayer is not formed by words alone. And this is what I think that Paul was talking about. Uh, I think in Romans 8, talking about the groanings in the Spirit. Um, and this is why I, I believe also ta uh, praying in the Spirit, that sometimes we just can't even find the words, but the Spirit, you know, speaks on our behalf some of those and communicates to the Most High. Because this Spirit came from Him, and if the Spirit's in us, 
it's like this, you know, communicate. He knows. He knows. But I think prayer, uh, this has been a long debated topic because you can take what Messiah says on the surface level and be like, well, don't ever pray in public. You, you know, when you come together on Shabbats and you have an assembly, you can't pray together. I don't think that's what he's talking about because Messiah prayed publicly. He prayed to the Father in, in John 17 in front of all the disciples. That was a public prayer. I think what he's getting at here is the, you know what it's like to be in the prayer closet and pray for um, certain people's conditions or financial stress or, you know, deliverance or all these different things. I, I think um, when when you're really exuding your heart out there um I, I think it is a great time for a private private prayer but uh we know there's 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 time for a public prayer like <clears throat> like when we get together at our assembly and people have prayer requests that they want to be healed well we're gonna lay hands on them and pray you know over them but once again motive and, and the reason i bring this up is is i've often seen um people boast about how long they pray. Like, I was in prayer for four hours, and you're like, four hours? Wow. Okay. Like, and it puts you in a position where you're like, I don't pray four hours. Does that mean I'm, I'm doing it wrong? Does that mean Does that mean I've got to pray four hours now to be to be righteous? Well, where's, the, where's, where's, the, where's the line? You know, wh- wh- how much time do I need to pray for me to be righteous enough? And that's where uh, I like what he says here. Um... Never use needless repetition or ramble on in the mistaken belief that the more you say, the more likely you're to be heard. So to me, it's not how much time of prayer, but the quality of your prayer. And thinking of it is communication. It's contact between Ruach and Ruach. And we know that the Father is spirit. So this is us speaking spirit to spirit with him. Um... In the prayer study we have up here, it's called, yeah, The Power of Prayer. This is last week. Okay. Now, we're going to read Messiah's Prayer. Now, this is a little different than, than what, we, what we know, but it's the same, same points. This is a pattern for prayer. So this is like a pattern. You don't have to always follow the pattern, but this gives you a basic outline, like the bones, if you will. Here's a good way to pray. Our Father in spirit, may your nature become known among men and your rule established on earth. You know, giving glory to the Most High. You look, who you, look at who you are. According to your heavenly plan, may your design be completed. Give us the sustenance we need and overlook our transgressions as we overlook the transgressions of others. Do not test us too severely and strengthen us against the servants of evil. When it says lead us not into tribulation, that you know, the, I guess the way that was translated um, is a little, it's a little contradictive to a lot of the other statements. It's like rejoice in tribulation. Be glad when you're in tribulation. And then there's a prayer like don't bring us into tribulation. Or, this sounds a lot, to me, a lot more realistic, do not test us too severely and strengthen us against the servants of evil. Because if you were to say, bring us not into trials, then you're basically saying, don't refine us. Don't. Because remember, Hebrews said, whoever is not chastised is a bastard and not a true son. If you overlook the failings of others and forgive people for the wrongs they have done to you, then the burden of your own will be alleviated. 
Also, when you fast or undertake an obligation, do not be like the hypocrites who lengthen their faces, going about it self-righteously, bringing themselves to the attention of others. Like, oh, oh, oh so hungry. Why are you so hungry? Oh, because I'm fasting. Fasting for three days. Fasting for seven days. And that person's like, whoa, you know. Again, what are you fasting for? Are you fasting for uh, for deliverance? Are you fasting for Yah? Are you fasting for someone else? Or are you fasting to get recognized by someone? Like, look at, look at me. How long I can go without food? Yeah. So don't be like the hypocrites who lengthen their faces, going about self-righteously, bringing themselves to the attention of others. Do it in secret. Now, I know there's also time to, to call for a public fast like we've done in our fellowship. Hey, there's something going on. Let's pray together. Let's fast. But do you have to tell your coworkers and everyone else? It's probably a good idea to tell your spouse. It's part of communication. Uh, hey, I may not be eating dinner tonight, honey, because I'm fasting. Outside of that, though, Shh. <laughs> Matthew 9 uh, let's see Matthew nine forty seven. hoard no earthly treasures which can be destroyed by moths and decay or may be stolen by thieves it is far better to establish a storehouse in the heavens for there you can accumulate treasures beyond the reach of these things a man's heart is never far from the place where he established his his credit. Uh, I think st said a little more clearly in the Gospels on, on the Synoptic Gospels on this one that where your uh, where your heart is, uh, where your treasure is, your heart will be also. So that's kind of what I was trying to say in a much more eloquent way uh, is really the focus of your mind and what you thirst after is, is really the treasure you're searching after. So if your treasure is the acclaim or uh, to be popular or to be known or to be respected or whatever. That's where your heart's going to be. Or if your heart is in doing what's right and focusing on, on the real mission at hand, not of other things, then you'll be blessed. To me, it's like not having your eye on the real prize. It's like when Peter was walking towards Messiah on the water. The winds were blowing around. Then his attention got elsewhere and he dropped. Keep your eye on the kingdom, on eternal life. That's what he says. I love it because it's not. he's not talking about just food and clothing. He's like, why are you worried about what you eat or what you shall drink or wherewith you shall be clothed? For all the nations seek after these things, but seek you first the kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. You'll get those things anyways. But your treasure should be the kingdom. It should be the good news. It should be the walk of obedience. That's the treasure. The word is the treasure chest. Why are you focusing your life on something else? All right. This is where he says in Matthew 6, 19 through 21, Lay not up for yourselves treasure upon earth where moth and rust does corrupt and where thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust does corrupt and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. 
Speaking of treasure, what is the treasure? Proverbs 2, 1 through 6. My son, if you will receive my words and hide my commandments with you so that you incline your ear unto wisdom and apply your heart to understanding. Yes, if you cry after knowledge and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as for hid treasures, then you shall understand the fear of Yahuwah and find the knowledge of, of Elohim. For Yahuwah gives wisdom. Out of his mouth comes knowledge and understanding that's the real treasure is his words his understanding his way of living proverbs 8 10 through 11 receive my instruction and not silver and knowledge rather than choice gold there's some rich people right now on earth that don't even know it and i'm talking about you you know messiah you know the most high you know his commandments they're in your heart and you want to keep them with all of your heart soul and mind you are rich Way richer than Gates and all them guys. For wisdom is better than rubies, and all the things that may be desired are not to be compared to it. Why? Remember, Messiah says, "For what was a what will a man gain if he, if he gains the whole world and loses his soul?" It doesn't matter how f- rich and famous and how many mansions you have. It doesn't matter. None of that is comparable to Yah's words and to applying them to your life. Praise Yah. That's room 948, providing you view everything optimistically, maintaining a cheerful and confident outlook. Hello, fruits of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, meekness, temperance, self-control, that's temperance, uh, long-suffering. Maintaining those in the midst of the trials, that's the test. So providing you view everything optimistically, that's faith. Even when things crumble, you can still look optimistically and be like, well, I still have a Father in Heaven that looks after my, my cares and needs. And Messiah said that if I focus on the kingdom and His righteousness, all these things will be taken care of anyways. Providing you view everything optimistically, maintaining a cheerful and confident outlook, you will radiate assurance. This is being the light. This is being a light to the others. If you do not, so if you're like negative Nancy out there, you will shed despondency. And gloom wherever you go. You want you want another word? Despondency. Let's look it up. Depression of spirits from loss of hope, confidence, or courage. Dejection, a sinking or dejection of spirits from loss of hope or courage in affliction or difficulty. Deep depression of spirit. So this is why we have to maintain the fruits of the ruach. So if you do not maintain the cheerfulness with everything you do. You will shed despondency and gloom wherever you go. You'll be the opposite of light. You'll be the the douster of the light. No man has ever succeeded in serving two masters, for his loyalties must lie with one or the other. Neither can a man have two prime objectives. He must aim for an earthly goal or a spiritual one. This goes back to kind of just sharing, um, again, just my outlook on the ministry when I first started the ministry. And... I wanted to share that with you so you can take the precepts of what I'm trying to share with you and apply it to your life and your struggles and uh, what, what you're doing, what you've been called to do. Let's remind ourselves of the fruits of the Spirit. The fruits of the Spirit is love, joy, shalom, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness. That's the one I always forget, goodness. Faith, meekness, and self-control. Against such there is no Torah. And they that are of messiahs have crucified the flesh because it's the flesh that gets in the way of these things. The flesh gets in the way of love and joy and shalom and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and faith and meekness and self-control. 
So they crucified the flesh with the affections and the lusts. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. And we know that Paul said this. Paul said that this, the law is spiritual. For we know that the law, the Torah, is spiritual. So if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not be desirous of vain glory, provoking one another or envying one another. And this is what social media breeds. It breeds vainglory. Look at me. Look at all these people looking at me. And then when one is successful and if a person's thought of success is measured by numbers or whatever, then that's where envy and jealousy comes from. And you see a lot of that in, uh, unfortunately, in uh, in the movement. And I actually, uh, oops, I totally spelled that wrong. Hopefully it'll still pull up. There we go. Uh, this is the Ascension of Isaiah. And I want to talk to you about how this was prophesied that even just in in ministry, that in the last days, um, here we go. This is the Ascension of Isaiah, chapter 3, verse 21. And afterwards, on the eve of his approach, Messiah, his disciples will forsake the teachings of the 12 apostles and their faith and their love and their purity. Listen to this. And there will be much contention on the eve of his approach. So right before he's getting ready to come back, there's going to be much contention. And in those days, many will love office, though devoid of wisdom. So a lot of people um, love to teach, though devoid of wisdom. And there will be many lawless elders and shepherds dealing wrongly by their own sheep, and they will ravage them, owing to their not having holy shepherds. And many will change the honor of the garments of the saints for the garments of the covetous. And listen to this. There will be much respect of persons in those days and lovers of the honor of this world. And there will be much slander and vain glory at the approach of the master. Let me ask you a question. Uh, I believe we're here at the approach of the master. He's coming. And I'm going to ask you, uh, especially those of you who that are here are, are uh, regulars on YouTube and you don't just watch my ministry, but others, you, and you see the comment sections and all that. Do you think that we're in a time of there's much slander and much of vain glory? And the Holy Spirit will withdraw from many. And there will not be in those days many prophets, nor those who speak trustworthy words, save one here or there in diverse places, on account of the spirit of error and fornication and of vain glory. Vain glory, this is this is something that we're really and this isn't talking about just social media. This is excessive or unwarranted pride in one's accomplishments or qualities. Vain, ostentatious, there's that word again, display. Ostentatious display. Look at me, look what I've done. So on account of the spirit of error and fornication and of vainglory and of covetousness, which shall be in those who will be called servants of that one and in those who will receive that one. So it's talking about this covetousness, this vainglory is going to be in believers in Messiah. Listen to this. And there will be great hatred in the shepherds and elders towards each other. For there will be great jealousy in the last days for everyone will say what is pleasing in his own eyes. Mic drop. That was just... So, what's the what's the point here? Neither can a man have two prime objectives. He must aim for an earthly goal or a spiritual one. Are you here for your reward on earth, or do you want your reward to be in heaven? And if you do, Messiah told us how to act. 
949, I advise you not to worry unduly about the future needs of the body, how it will be nourished and clothed. There is more to life than eating and comfort, while overdone pleasure soon palls. Like, and, and I've said this many times, it's like, I can again, once again, share my testimony that um, I was very successful in in, in um, the business world and earning an income. Um and I kept thinking I was be happy by buying all these different things and, or you know, going on nice vacations or, or whatever, or buying nice boats or whatever. While overdone pleasure soon palls. It's very temporary. It's like, um, it's like let's say there's a hole in your heart and there's just a hole and it's emptying. You're emptying through this hole in your heart and you keep trying to put band aids on the on the hole to to try to stop stop the the leak in your heart, but it doesn't work wasn't until I lost all that and came to our Heavenly Father and repented of my sinful ways and acknowledged His Son and, and asked for that forgiveness and the guilt to be removed off that I believe He gave me a new heart and repaired that hole. And by continuing to walk in His ways, that hole never reopens. And it stays whole. W-H-O-L-E. Keep this one fact constantly in mind. The soul is of more importance than the body. That's why Messiah could boldly say, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Stop sinning. Think about the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap or gather in a harvest, yet provision has been made for their needs. Do you think any less consideration has been given to your welfare? Trust in the power above, and when things go wrong, try to understand the reason. When you are being tried by tribulation, try and see the objection of the test. Wow, I love that. So it's like when you're in the midst of trial, instead of like, oh, why me? Why? Like, Father, what can I learn from this? Where do I need to grow? Teach me the lesson here, Father. I want to be refined. I want to, I want to, I ask that you take the dross away from me and that only the good will remain. Help me, Father, to cultivate uh, the fruits of righteousness in my heart, you know, or whatever it is. Something like that. I love this. When things go wrong, try to understand the reason. When you are being tried by tribulation, try to see the objective of the test. Love it. Is there anyone among you who by thought alone can add an arm's length to his height? No. Worry is a useless activity of the mind. So why worry about food and clothing? Worry essentially is the absence of faith. Because if you had true faith, you know that your father would deliver you from whatever you're worrying about. Look how the wildflowers grow in the meadows. Do they, not, they do not toil or spin. Yet Solomon in full regalia was not attired so attractively as one of these. If such beauty is bestowed on wildflowers, which can display it only for a few days before being consumed, shall Yahweh not much more give attention to you, his children? Or have you no faith in anything? Therefore, worry, worry less about material things and concentrate more on the spiritual, making the cause of Elohim your main concern. Bam! That's it. That's that's the test of life. Do this and all other things will come within your reach. Do not worry about tomorrow, for it will look after itself. Each day will bring you sufficient problems without the need to worry about those of other days. Praise Yah. We'll read a couple of parallel scriptures. Sirach 2. My son, if you come forward to serve Yahuwah, prepare yourself for temptation or trial or testing. Set your heart right and be steadfast, and do not be hasty in time of calamity. Cleave to him and do not depart, that you may be honored at the end of your life. Accept 
whatever is brought upon you, and in changes that humble you, be patient. For gold is tested in the fire, and acceptable men in the furnace of humiliation. Trust in him, and he will help you. Make your ways straight and hope in him. You who fear Yahuwah, wait for his mercy, and turn not aside, lest you fall. You who fear Yahuwah, trust in him, and your reward will not fail. So either he is an all-knowing, uh, all-present being that sees everything, or he's not. It's one of two things. And I obviously we believe he is, and that he sees every need and worry and care. So what does it say? What does the scripture say? Cast your cares upon, upon him because he loves you, and he will take care of you. If anxiety is plaguing you, try quitting caffeine. Pro tip. I used to struggle greatly. I was a worry wart, and I overanalyzed everything. I'd be that guy that would wake up at 3 in the morning and think about everything I didn't do yesterday and I have to do today and all the things that could go wrong. And there I was, awake from 3 a.m. until the time I had to get ready for work. And I'm like, great. Again? I prayed, 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 and then I felt led to quit caffeine, and boom, praise you. If you didn't know, caffeine... Uh, actually makes anxiety way worse. Just so you know. Matthew 6, 33-34, But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added, shall be yours as well. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Let the, let the day's own trouble be sufficient for the day. Romans twelve twelve, Rejoice in your hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. 1 Peter 2, 19-25 For one is approved if, mindful of Elohim, he endures pain while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you do wrong and are beaten for it, you take it patiently? So what? But if when you do right and suffer for it, you take it patiently, you have Elohim's approval. For to this you have been called, because Messiah also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, no guile was found on his lips, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he trusted to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I want to read one last passage. Uh, actually, we'll read two more. There is no reason why hypocrisy, the disease of the day, should come so naturally to men. But which of you is not contaminated by it? How many of you are self-deceivers, making excuses for these things? How is it that you can readily detect the small faults in others while being so absolutely blind to your own much greater ones? Now this are the Pharisees of today. And there's a lot of Pharisees in the Torah movement. They're so ready to detect the small faults in other people's, other people's but don't even see their glaring problems. That's a hypocrite. That's why Messiah says, first take the, the log out of your own eye, then you can go to your neighbor and help him get the one out of his. How can you say to another, let me help you see more clearly when you are practically blind yourself? You hypocrites and self-deceivers first examine your own faults and failings before criticizing those of others. Now I will just say this. I think this is part of growing up because we know that we're born again. Well, Peter says we're supposed to be like babies desiring the sincere milk of the word that you may grow by it. So in our growth in Yah, I think the prime focus of ourselves should be looking inwardly and not looking at everyone else. 
Because when you do it this way, even by just doing things the right way, you can be an example to others without even reproving them. Your own life can just be reproof. We're our lives are supposed to be, we're supposed to be epistles, letters uh, written on our hearts to, for all men to read. Matthew 7, 1 through 5, that's the parallel. Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. And with what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you again. And why do you behold the mote that is in your brother's eye, but consider not the beam that is in your own eye? Or how will you say to your brother, let me pull out the mote out of your eye. And behold, a beam is in your own eye. You hypocrite, first cast out the beam out of your own eye, and then you shall see clearly to cast out the moat out of your brother's eye. And that's where Torah terrorism comes into play because you got a bunch of people that are like in the toddler phase and are just going around thrashing with the word and beating people up. And that's why the movement is counterproductive when people like that speak up. Last verse. This verse changed my life. And it changed it because... Last week, two weeks ago, was the first time I ever really asked for help uh, with the ministry because we were in a in a bind. And this first changed my mind, changed my my thought. Never be afraid to voice your needs. And if you have a friend, turn to him wherever you require help. For this is the nature of friendship. And I thank you all because you all answered. Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. These things are the Torah of life. For at the at the end, it will be said to you, as you have sought, so you have found. And according to the manner of asking, you have received. It is not what you seek, but how you seek. Not what you request, but the manner of requesting. So with that, brothers and sisters, uh, bless you. And um, I pray that there is something in here of blessing to you and your household. And I look forward. See, so next, yeah, I'll be able to do the not stream next week, but the following week, I may have a gap of a week or two with that. Um, we do have Hebrew Fest, which is coming. Uh, it's going to be a uh, three-day weekend of live music. Um, there's a, a video we uploaded just a few days ago called Hebrew Fest. If you're interested in that, coming out here to Southwest Southwest Missouri and enjoying praise and worship music to the Most High. Well, that's what we're going to be doing. It's going to be July 7th, 8th, and 9th. And I'll leave some links in the description box uh, if you're interested in that. So um, with that, brothers and sisters, let's pray and uh, do a song or two, probably just do one song. And then um, probably in about 15 minutes, the Torah portion will start. So let's pray. Father Yahuwah, Most High, we just bless you and thank you so much uh, for your goodness, for your long-suffering and your mercy and your meekness with us. Thank you so much uh, for giving us an opportunity to serve you and to know you. Because we know that no one can even be drawn to Messiah unless you allow it. So we thank you. Thank you for allowing us to be born such a time as this. When your truth is being restored on the earth. When the tribes of Jacob, the true seed of Israel. Those by faith in Messiah are coming back to your ways, O Yahuwah. Help us to be a light. Help us to see our own faults. Father, I pray that you'd make manifest in our lives. the glaring issues that need to be dealt with. And I pray that you'd help us to be refined. Uh, and I pray that the, um, the refinement be not too grievous for any one of us to bear and that you'd help us in the midst of it, Father, and that we'd be ready at the return of Yahushua HaMashiach that we pray is soon. But in the meantime, help us to get every soul, snatch every soul out of the beast's kingdom and to put them into yours or to guide them to yours. 
We love you. We bless you. Thank you for the Shabbat. What, a, what an amazing blessing you've given to mankind. In Yahushua's name, we do pray and honor you. Amen. Hallelujah. So we'll do a song. What song are we going to do? Um... Dark waves start to grow The evening breezes turn Violent waters are now stirred Ships find their way To the bottom of a deep blue grave As those aboard believe That hope lies where of those that sing the world does also sing we're safe here in our ship trust the boat and ocean the lies are all around and truth is hardly found but burning this sailor's heart is the way of a set apart is my rock in salvation I trust in his foundation he's my anchor when I'm wrestling the storm he's my anchor I rely on the Lord he's my anchor I shall not be afraid no weapon formed against me shall prosper for surely Salvation, trust in his foundation. 